Welcome back, NodPod. Happy Thursday. Happy holidays, if holidays are something that you do. Hope you guys are all having fun. And if this is your first time listening to the show, my name is Janine. I'm the host and creator of the show, Chasing Heroin. After 15 years of active addiction, the last five of years of which I was homeless and in and out of jail, and I really believed that I would die a heroin addict. And if I didn't die a heroin addict, I would live the rest of my life as a loser and a failure. And in January of 2015, I kicked heroin for the last time, and since then, I've rebuilt my life. And in 2020, while my other business was closed, I felt compelled to start sharing with others those ideas. You don't have to die a dope fiend. Not only do you not have to die a dope fiend, your addiction is not a liability. It's it's an asset. It left us all stronger and wiser. I really believe that. And the purpose of this show is to rebuild the esteem of addicts, either people that are actively using or people that have 10 years and are still growing as people and are in personal development work and are interested in hearing the stories of us, the good, the bad, the funny, the sometimes really, really funny, the sometimes really, really painful, and delving deeper into this idea that as addicts, we're actually stronger as people because I really believe that. And actually speaking of being stronger as people, so so the episode that you guys are about to listen to is our most downloaded episode ever across all the seasons, across all three seasons or four or five seasons that we've got. This episode has been listened to the most and this is the second episode I released. It's one of my stories. It's actually my last arrest. I got arrested for strong arm robbery. And if you have events from your past and you still look back on and you think that they like make you a loser or they left some sort of like chink in your self-esteem, this episode is for you because we're gonna talk about, I felt that way and I thought I would never be any different. And I learned some stuff around this actual event that helped me develop as a person. And it was funny when I was listening to this, I thought about cutting it out, but I'm gonna leave it in. Speaking of like growth as a person, when I started this show in 2020, I only knew my form of recovery, which was to just go to 12-step meetings. That's it. And I say in this episode, I recommend 12-step and abstinence over harm reduction. I say that. And I double took and looked at the phone because I don't believe that. Me in 2023 doesn't believe that. Because doing the show, I have met so many people that successfully use harm reduction. They're either on maintenance or they've done maintenance for a few years until their life stabilized and then they slowly chose to detox or they've stayed on it. And I've learned so much through my guests that I can't believe I said that. And I didn't even know that that's been living in this episode for all these years. And it's the most downloaded, it's the most downloaded episode. And so I've grown through the show because I totally don't think that anymore. I, I'm shocked I even said that. So anyways, when you guys get that, like I said, I almost cut it out, but then I was like, you know what? No, let me leave it in and say I learned. You know, I learned from Nate. I learned from my guests that there are a bunch of different ways to recover. You can do 12-step. That's what worked for me, but that isn't what works for everyone. And I've learned so much from my guests over the years. And this has been such like a journey for me too. You also get to hear Kim, who was my original co-host and very good friend. And she's such a good co-host. She's a you know licensed marriage and family therapist and was so caring and compassionate, not in recovery and, and helped me launch the show. So that's today's episode. I think there's a lot to learn from this one and it's buried pretty deep in the archives. So if you've been listening for a while, you may not have heard this one or you may not have heard it for a while because I didn't remember any of it. I didn't even remember saying that. So anyways, as always, NodPod, please let me know what you guys think and we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Love you.
I'm just going to get right into it. So today is kind of cool. I've wanted to do this podcast for years and I always told myself I wanted to start the podcast in either June, July, or August because June, July, and August of 2013 were, they were some insane months for me and my using. And I always thought it would be great to be able to tell those stories juxtaposed with my life now because they are so different. So fortunately, I did end up launching in August. So we'll get to June and June and July next year, I guess. But um, so today is August third when we're recording, and the event that I'm talking about happened on August fifth of two thousand thirteen, and this is probably the most one of the craziest things that happened to me in my using. So August fifth, two thousand thirteen. I should find some little effect that's like <laughs> like Wayne's World where they go back in time. Well, and I'm sitting here like we're really real. curious to hear because I've heard some pretty fascinating stories yeah. from you so I'm like this is gonna be yeah interesting Kim and I are not sure if she's heard this story most of my friends have heard some of my stories but we're not sure if she's heard this one she's heard some of the end of it so August 5th 2013 I was homeless I had been homeless since June ish and again we'll get into that June next year I'd been homeless and um I didn't have a car I had a little huffy bike that my boyfriend at the time had stolen out of someone's yard. So we both had these little like crappy bikes that we cruised around Oceanside in. We were both fully strung out on heroin and we just mobbed around town committing small little petty crimes to get enough heroin to stay well through the day. And again, if you didn't listen to our last episode, when you hear me say strung out, what I mean by that is physically, chemically addicted to heroin. So after a few hours of not doing heroin, I would start to get really, really sick. So uh, when you hear that slang, that's what that means. Get well means do a shot so that you're not sick anymore. Or if some addicts smoke. I was using needles at this point. But so it's August 5th. Our good friend had just been released from prison. He'd been raided um, a year and a half prior and he'd been in prison the whole time. He lived with another friend of ours and he'd been in prison for about 18 months. So he'd just gotten out. He was on parole. And he was staying at a Motel 6 in Carlsbad that we conned him somehow into letting us come over and hang out. And allowing us to come over and hang out was something that most people like didn't want us to do because my ex and I brought massive amounts of trouble wherever we went, obviously. Mm -hmm. We always had drugs on us. We always had needles on us. We fought all the time. Mm -hmm. We were constantly like physically fighting and getting the cops called and we were just like a walking nightmare for years. So anyways... He'd gotten out of prison. He was willing to let us come over. So we went over and we needed to. So our, our little stupid hustle typically was we would steal things from stores and then resell them on like Craigslist. Mm -hmm. And I stole makeup products. And I actually had a person that I worked with in Vista. And I'm not sure if she knew I was stealing things or I told her that I just had really good coupons mm -hmm. and I bought things in bulk and then she bought them for me. I, you know, I, I met her in parking lots. So I'm not really sure if she knew, but anyways, we decided to ride our bikes over to the mall in Carlsbad and we were going to go on a little shoplifting rampage, picking up stuff in the, in the mall. So we ride our bikes over there, park our park stash, our bikes <laughs> behind this bush outside Macy's. And it's so crazy. All this stuff is like still in the exact same spots. Like to this day, when I drive by, I'm like, wow, that's where I left my bike when mm -hmm. that was the only thing that I had. So stash the bikes behind this bush, go inside, and immediately, I remember, like, swiping a couple of bottles of perfume, whatever, and we split up. He went somewhere to go steal, and I went somewhere to go steal. 
So I ended up in Sephora, which is inside JCPenney. And the first thing I did was I put a necklace on and was walking around wearing it. And I actually don't remember if I intended to steal that. I think Mm -hmm. I didn't, but it doesn't really matter. And then I went into Sephora and I was stealing makeup products actually for myself, not even to sell. And I remember in particular, I stole... I, I had very high ta- high end taste for a, <laughs> you know for a homeless junkie. I wanted NARS orgasm, the blush. Yeah, um, it was my fave. <laughs> so I stole a NARS orgasm blush and a couple of other things. And there was this chick like following me around the makeup store, and I had a feeling she was maybe a secret shopper, but I wasn't sure because she was in the makeup store, but she only had like this tiny string bikini that like obviously wasn't her size. And I remember seeing her. And it was on my radar a little that she maybe was, you know, a secret shopper, which is somebody that watches shoplifters. So I got my stuff. I was pretty sure she hadn't seen me even if, and I was so paranoid at that point that I thought everybody was always like cops and secret shoppers and blah, Mm -hmm. blah. So anyways, I had my stuff, leave JCPenney. And the girl, sure enough, walks up behind me. I'm like just outside the doors inside the actual mall. And she said, excuse me. And I thought, oh shit. And I turned around. I was like, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah. And she said, you've got that, that necklace on. Can you come with me? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you know what? I forgot about the necklace. Let me just give this right back to you. So I start taking off the necklace and she reached out and it wasn't a purse. I had this Victoria's Secret, like a giveaway bag that I was using as a purse. Right. So she grabbed like the strings on this bag and she was like, no, actually I need you to come with me and come back inside the store. And I knew where this story mm-hmm. was going. And so I went, nope. And I literally just slipped out of my bag and took off running through the mall <laughs> down, you know, like where there's all the open storefronts and you can just, you know, I was mm-hmm. like screaming down that hallway. And as I was running, I saw, it was like a cartoon. I looked across and in the windows across from me, mm-hmm. I could see this guy was like, this guy was like a Brazilian soccer athlete. He had to have been, dude. As I'm running and I was hauling ass, I see him gaining on me in the windows across the mall and I was like oh shit and I literally see him jump and I watch him in the mirror in the window as he crashes into me knocks me to the ground and I mean and p.s I had just pled guilty to printing my own and cashing fake checks like two weeks before this oh no so knowing that I'm like completely freaking out because I just pled guilty to a relatively you know big offense Mm -hmm. my biggest offense so far so he tackles me I'm screaming, fighting, get off of me. Like, I didn't do anything. And all I could think, too, I was in front of Charlotte Roos. And I had a friend that I had met in rehab Mm -hmm. a year prior who worked there. And I thought, oh, my God, she's going to know I relapsed. That was, like, going through my mind. I hadn't spoken to her in, like, Mm -hmm. a year. And I was thinking about that. So I'm fighting this guy off me, fighting this guy off me. He wins, obviously, because I'm a, you know, strung out girl. Picks me up, brings me downstairs. They call the Carlsbad cops. I'm sitting there not speaking to anybody, which is what I always did. They searched my purse, whatever. They're arresting me for shoplifting. She says, stand up, turn around. I'm arresting you for shoplifting. And I'm thinking, okay, that's not that bad because I actually had some paraphernalia in my purse that they had not found. Mm. And I was thinking, okay, shoplifting, that's not that bad, right? So she arrests me, leads me outside. And, oh, before that, they found my ex's wallet in my purse. Mm Mm-hmm and thought that I had stolen it. And they said, who's this guy? You know, how do you have this wallet? And I said, that's my boyfriend. He's in the mall also. Mm-hmm. You can call him. He knows I have his wallet. And I gave the number. They called him. You know, he, he didn't answer. 
So they're leading me outside and I get in the cop car. And as I get in the cop car, there is another police car parked there also. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't see who was in it, but I remember thinking, oh, I bet I know who's in that car. I bet we both got arrested at the same time. Because on the way out, I was thinking, well, maybe he could bail me out or whatever. So I get the car, go to jail. I'm sitting there outside, and there's a little area where they tell you, where they read charges, do your mug shots, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So they take my mug shot. And she says to, and this moment is like burned in my brain, she says to the bailiff who's on the computer, who's, who tells you what your bond is and mm-hmm. puts the charges in. Mm-hmm. She says to her, is it still a 211? Is that still? And the lady nods, yeah. And I'm like, a 211? And when you're a criminal, you know what these different charges are. Right. You know what they are, I guess, right? Right, from working with... Yeah. Yep. And I'm like, <laughs> and for the first time, and I'd been completely ignoring the cop, like obnoxiously ignoring, like, what's your name? No answer. She had to look at my ID. Because I had used to kind of try to talk to them and reason with them and... That never worked out, so I wasn't saying anything, and I was really mad. I, I couldn't believe I was getting caught again. I was really mad at myself, mostly. So um, I said, a 211. Mm-hmm. Are you serious? Really? For some makeup? And she said, oh, now you want to talk to me? Okay. <laughs> and she said, you wanted to be cute and not talk to me, so I have to go by their story, not yours. And I was like, wow. Wow. Huh. And I looked at the bailiff, and I said, what's the bail on that? Oh, man. And she said, very, very like, you know, no emotion. A hundred thousand. Said a hundred thousand bucks? A hundred thousand dollars? And she was like, yes, ma'am. And I was like, oh my God. And I remember looking at the cop who was just grinning at me. And let me take this moment too, by the way, to say that I actually have no beef with the police. Anytime I got arrested, it was my fault. I was a danger to my community. So anytime I, I comment on the cops... They were doing their job. I just want to make it clear that I believe and understand that. So anyways, <laughs> looking at the cop, and I'm like, wow, wow. And I kind of start laughing, sickering. And they hand me something to sign. And I noticed the date. It was August 5th. Mm-hmm. And I got this uncle who I adore, my Uncle Cliff. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he'll listen to this podcast one day. He might. I love him. I look up to him. I revere this guy. And August 5th is his birthday. And when I wrote it down and, and signed, you know, I, it was probably signing what I was getting charged with. I don't really remember. But I had to see the date and sign my name. And I remember I made this little, like, I was like, like a sound. Because I was, I got a little sad in the moment. Like, look at me. And it's my uncle's birthday. Like, mm-hmm. you know. And the cop said, oh, you think this is funny? You're laughing. And when you're in a situation like that with cops and they're kind of like baiting you and talking to you. In my head, I'm thinking, like, you have to answer you know? Right. And I said, no, I don't think this is funny. I, um, and she was like, what, what? And I said, I just, the date, it's my uncle. And I'm thinking like, you don't care, but you have to answer. And I said, it's my uncle's birthday. All right. It's my mm-hmm. uncle's birthday. And she took the clipboard back from me and she was like, well, I'm sure he's very proud of his niece. Ouch. Yeah. And just walked out. Oof. And I remember thinking, that's also why this date's burned in my brain. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, yeah. Yeah. Fuck. So I walk into the jail, to the little cell, and they've got... So when you go to holding, which is the place you go to before jail, you I know you know a lot of this, but for people listening that haven't gone to jail, which is hopefully most of you, um, you go to holding first, and they give you an opportunity to try to bail out. So the way that the Vista holding is set up is there's a phone on the wall, and then there's a glass wall with the bailiffs on the other side, and then taped to that glass wall is a list of bail bondsmen. 
and I always use wizard bonds. Mm -hmm. The guy's name's Tom. Shout out to Tom at Wizard Bail Bonds. <laughs> guy's great. I actually brought him my year because he always believed in me. He would bail me out. He wouldn't bail out my ex, but he would bail me out sometimes. And he was cool. And on the way home, he'd be like, Janine, what are you doing? It was like this really nice bondsman. Mm -hmm. So anyways, I started to pick up the payphone and call Tom. I'm looking at the, at the number. And so to get released on bond is 10%. So that would have been $10,000. Right. So I picked up the phone and I was like, and I literally started laughing out loud. I was like, that would give me 10 grand. <laughs> and I slammed the thing down and I knocked on the window. And um, I just remembered something important. And... Um, I said, hey, dress me out. I'm not, I'm not doing this. And dress me out means put on uh, different clothes and go down to regular jail, go down to Las Colinas. And typically you want to try to bail out first, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to do that, obviously. So, and you can get warmer clothes before you go to jail, and jail is freezing. So I knocked on the window, dress me out. The bailiff said, no, Coulter, you don't want to try to bail out? And I was like, no, that's fine. So I dress out, go down to Las Colinas. So I'm down at the big jail for, and now this is when it gets, so when I go to jail, because I'm on record as a heroin addict, they mm -hmm. give me Librium basically as soon as I get there mm -hmm. so that I don't, so that you don't like have a seizure. Like I have to be on a bottom bunk, like all this stuff. Cause you get really, really sick when you're, you know, kicking heroin. So they give you Librium and Librium affects me the way, like, um, I don't even know if Limbo, if Librium is a benzo, but benzos affect me like crazy and just knock me out. So I was on Librium when I get to Las Colinas, and I just remember, so I'm incredibly, incredibly sick, and I'd been to Las Colinas on Librium before, and it wasn't that bad. This time, it was, like, way bad. I was so sick. I throw up in my little, they give you a tub to put your stuff in, and I just, like, puked all over my stuff, but fortunately, I had a friend in there who she and I had gotten arrested together in June, and she was still there when I went back, mm -hmm. and she was kind of in charge of the the house at that time or not the house the um I forget what they call it like the pod so she helped me clean up my throw up and stuff so on like day two I guess it was they bust you up back up to Vista to see a judge so they bust me up and I'm so sick waiting in the back dog sick no idea what's going on they're calling girls out to go see the judge and hear your charges and I remember talking to somebody, oh, and by the way, the 211, I don't remember if I said this, 211 is, is armed robbery. That's what they were charging me with. They were charging me with armed robbery, but one step down, which is strong armed robbery because I had fought that security guard. So, so that's what that was. So at some point I had to, I, I talked to um, a public defender mm -hmm. who said it's really, really serious. You could get a strike for this and, you know, go to prison and all that. And I, and I remember that in a haze, I went back. And at the end of the day, so there was another girl in there that I was friends with that I had known from Choices, that rehab I was talking about. She happened to be there with me also. Different girl from the one that helped me clean up my puke. Different girl that I knew in jail. So she was with me. And she said, hey, Miha, I think you're going to go home. You didn't see the judge. And I'm like, no, I'm not going home, dude. That guy said I'm going to prison, something like that. And he said, she said, no, you did a dry run. I, don't, I think you're going home. And I didn't know what that meant. But I thought, no, I'm not going home. But I did not, in fact, see a judge. And again, I'm totally out of it on Librium. So we go home on the bus. And I don't remember if it was that night or the next night. I think it was that night. Mm -hmm. At like 10 o'clock at night, the bailiff came walking into the, the dorm and said, Coulter, you're rolling up. Get your stuff. And I remember being like, what? No, I'm not. Which means you're getting out. Right. And I was like, no, I'm not. 
And she was like, get, you know, and they don't care. She's like, get the fuck up. You know, mm-hmm. they're yelling at me. And I'm like, okay, oh my God. And mm-hmm. I'm like getting all my stuff. And I'm like, no way. And maybe somebody bailed me out. No way. And was in jail also. And so I knew that, you know, my ex hadn't bailed me out because he was in jail. Mm-hmm. And Were you they, still sick at this point? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dog sick. Mm-hmm. Out of my mind sick. Plus on Librium. So I'm like very hate. I'm fuzzy on some of the stuff that happened during those three days. Mm-hmm. What I do remember is when I was in holding, I had called my mom also after I decided not to bail out. I called my mom. And the last time I'd been in jail, my dad had sent me an email. As you know, my dad is incredibly important to me. What he thinks of me is very important to me. Mm -hmm. And throughout my entire using in the back of my mind always was I couldn't believe I was doing this to my dad. I just Mm -hmm. couldn't believe it. So Mm -hmm. the last time I'd been in jail, um, he'd sent me this letter. And um, I remember I was dog sick that time too. And I like stumbled back to my bunk and they folded, they just fold the piece of paper in half, leave it on your thing. And I opened it and at the bottom it said, love dad. And I was like, oh cool, a letter from my dad. All sick and I read it. And, you know, he was pissed. Mm-hmm. And I remember him saying, you're, you're very far away from, from God and, you know, the way that I raised you. And he'd listed some Bible verses, and that was it. So I called my mom, and I said, hey, tell Dad if he wants to write me again, just, like, be nice. Mm-hmm. And then I'm letting you know I'm going to be gone probably for a while. So, and also, she had looked it up and seen that my ex had been arrested also. So that was how I knew he was in jail. So anyways, they're letting me roll out. I'm leaving. I get dressed. And I'm still so confused that I'm being released. And right before they let you out, the guy had me sign something. And he said, okay, we have a year to press charges. Or the police have a year to press charges. Sign this. You're out of here. And he just, like, opened up the door. And before I went outside, I was like, wait, can I call somebody? Right. So I called my mom. And she was like, Janine, how are you serious? Are they letting you out? It was literally, like, 10 o'clock at night. We should ask her if it was a Friday or a Saturday. I mean, I guess it doesn't really matter. But, um... 10 o'clock at night, and she couldn't believe that they were letting me out. She was actually, like, really disappointed. She was hoping that they were going to keep me in. She told me later. So she said, all right, I'll come to get you. And I remember going out in the lawn, and I literally laid down in the front yard of Las Colinas and, like, passed out. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I know, my mom was waking me up. And I asked her if I could go to her house. She said no, which I understand now. And she brought me back, actually, to the Motel 6. Mm -hmm. And our buddy was still there. He still had a room. And, you know, he let me in. So that was what happened that night. And they never, and the next day I went back over and got my bike. It was still outside the mall. Wow. Got my bike back, yeah. And the next bit is a little bit harrowing because I was homeless for the first time by myself because they left my ex in jail for another month or so Mm -hmm. after this before he got out. So I was homeless by myself this time. And they never pressed charges. Nothing ever came of that arrest. Um... And so I'm not sure, I don't actually know what happened with that, mm-hmm. um, but I'll, I'll get into that a little bit with, with so what I believe about, about what happened. So, right. Yeah, I think the DA like, can choose whether they're going to pick can. it up or they not. They totally can. But I, can. I didn't realize, I mean, that has to be kind of scary. Maybe you weren't in like, the mind space to be worried about it for a year oh, but no, to, to think oh, of was. like yeah I was. I was for a year I was worried I mean about that's it. terrifying yeah. it was it was pretty terrifying because they could have sent me to you know to prison which is mm-hmm. what that defender had told me right um so I was always thinking about it because I didn't get clean then right like my sobriety date is in 2015 that was my last arrest mm-hmm. but I didn't get sober right then mm-hmm. so um the the main premise of this of this podcast like I said at the beginning is so we don't just tell these stories for no reason. I tell these stories 
because I learned things that were really valuable. And you think like, how could you learn something from that insanity that you just said? Uh, but this is what I learned. And in the intro episode, we talked a little bit about post-traumatic stress growth. And after trauma, it's this idea that you don't just bounce back, but you can actually bounce forward and you can pick up some value from what happened. I mean, to some extent, I guess I hope it's a cautionary tale, but if you're an addict, like I was an addict, no stories I heard ever stopped me from trying anything because I always believed, well, wow, that sucks for you. It sounds like you really had a problem, <laughs> but nothing like that would ever happen to me. So I don't know how much any of this would actually stop somebody from, from using or progressing in their addiction. But what I would like to offer is what positives came out of these specific events not just in changing my mind and the way that I looked at my addiction, whether or not I even was an addict, but also like my life in general. So as I share these aspects, I want you, the listener, to reflect maybe on your own journey. And if you have anything that you're struggling with, and listen, it doesn't have to be a drug addiction, right? Most people aren't heroin addicts, fortunately. If you think that you spend too much time scrolling on Instagram and not moving forward or have a, a, you know an issue with eating or or in a you know making poor relationship choices anything that is immobilizing you in some way or preventing you from living your life to the fullest and you know immediately right now when i said that deep down what that is for you and if there's something like that with you that you would like to change maybe reflect on that as as i'm as i'm speaking because that's really my goal here is to maybe help you know crack open a little light for other people also so probably the 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 primary thing that I learned in this experience or that I realized in addiction, we talk about the progression of the disease of addiction and that it gets worse over time, never better. It's progressive, incurable, and fatal, they say in AA and in NA. And I had been, my first arrest, which was in 2010, I got arrested for a DUI. This was before I was using any hard drugs. DUI, blew a .09. I was on my way back from like a sushi place in La Jolla. If you can have a high class DUI, I don't know. Yeah, was a, in my opinion, it was a classy arrest. It was my first arrest, my mugshot's really good, and my hair extensions in. And I had drank, you know, too many martinis and got pulled over, 0.09, whatever, and go to jail, scared out of my brain in jail, you know, never been. And I'm in that same room that I was just describing. I'm in holding in Vista. And my bail for that was 2,500, so 250 to get out. My stepdad had already paid it. He was on his way, whatever. So I'm just sitting there like shivering in jail because like I said, jail is freezing. And this girl came in, you know, kind of later at night, one or two in the morning, she came in, kind of raising a ruckus. When she came in, she obviously knew the bailiffs. They were addressing her by name. And I remember her knocking on the window and she said, dress me out. And I didn't know what that meant, but I realized that it meant she was gonna leave and go to the bigger jail and it somehow came up and I remember the bailiff was like you need to stop doing this you know when are you going to change your life you know she was kind of talking to her and I remember the girl was like I don't know you know me like they obviously knew her pretty well and somehow it came up I, I guess I must have just directly asked her what her bail was and she said a hundred thousand and I remember thinking oh my god how does that happen how do you have a hundred thousand dollar bail that's insane and she didn't even try to bail out she just left so there I am, three years later, and when I hung up the phone, when I decided, okay, nobody's gonna give me 10,000 to get out of here, I remembered, it was like a movie. I hung up the phone, and as I put the phone back in the cradle on this crap-ass payphone at Vista Jail, I'm sure it's still the same one, there's two of them actually, I was on the left one. As soon as I hung it up, 
I remembered that moment and I had the wherewithal even in that moment to think, how did I get here? Mm -hmm. How did I get here? And I remembered that girl and I thought, oh my God, that's me. That became me. I can't believe that happened. And what that moment did for me, not right then, because there's a lot of other stuff happening in jail that you have to like sort out. But when I got out, I ended up back in a detox after my ex got out, I ended up in a detox and I went back to that, that place that I've been talking about. My, my mom paid for me to go one more time. Thank God. And while I was there, I realized I was, I was living progression, the, pro, the progression of addiction, because I had gone from an, you know, arguably an alcoholic who had gotten pulled over and gotten a DUI, which I didn't think was a really big deal at the time, to three years later, exactly what I had witnessed that night in holding. I, you know, I, I had become that. And the reason that's important is step one in the 12 steps is typically a timeline where you go over your use from age, you know, whatever, 14, 15, 16, whenever you started through your current age and you timeline out and write down what happened and what the consequence of that was. And the idea is when you're the sponsor, you go back over it with somebody and the idea is to look at the escalating consequences because typically if you are ended up in a meeting where you're asking for somebody to sponsor you, you're gonna have a timeline that has some progressive consequences. And so you wanna try to highlight that for the person, for them to look at. Mm -hmm. And I really truly believed that I was not a drug addict. I really, really, really believed that all the way until the very end. And what I believed was that I had just accidentally gotten strung out on heroin. And I remember actually telling the first sponsor I ever had who tragically and many of the people, and this is something it's interesting. I've realized stuff just even talking the past two weeks to Kim about doing this podcast. A lot of the people I'm going to reference in my stories have died, including this person I'm about to mention. And they kind of rack up over time and you think, oh man, you know, there's another person, but it's crazy now when I think about how many of these people actually ended up overdosing, including this person. So my first sponsor came to visit me when I was in rehab, not this time, not after this arrest, before any of this. Mm -hmm. And I remember she came over and I told her, I was like, look, dude, I'm not really a drug addict. I accidentally got strung out on heroin and I did Coke and I drank for years with like, you know, relatively no consequences. I was fine. The only problem is I got accidentally addicted to the one thing that you have to do every single day. But once I get off of that, like I'm going to be fine. And I remember her saying, I remember where we were sitting when she said it, she was really nice about it. And she said, yeah, Janine, you know, I hear you. And I can see why you would think that, but here's the thing. Normal people don't accidentally get strung out on heroin. Mm -hmm. That doesn't usually happen. And when she said that, I, I realized that that was, you know, that was true. I thought about like these two girls I went to high school with my, my two best friends. One of them ended up going to law school. One of them was, has done very well also. And I realized, yeah, that's true. Like they would never get accidentally strung out on heroin. You would never get accidentally strung out on heroin, right? Like the average person, if you encounter heroin, you leave or call the cops or it's not something that happens. Mm -hmm. And she said that, I still didn't even really believe her, right? This is a year later we're talking about when I'm in jail realizing I was living the progression, but all of these things started to add up. And that moment when I realized I was living what I had thought was such a nightmare three years prior was very impactful on me. Mm -hmm. The other thing that really came out of this that still 
affects me in such a positive way to this day. And this is going to be a recurring theme and it sounds kind of cliche. I'm almost hesitant to get into it, but I can't be because it's probably the hallmark of my recovery, which is gratitude. Mm-hmm. And for, I just texted my uncle last week was his birthday. Mm-hmm. And I still, to this day, this has been seven years since this incident. I texted him happy birthday. He doesn't even know that any of this happened. I mean, I guess he might now if he listens to this, but I texted him and he said, Hey, you know, thanks. I hope you guys are doing well. And I was flooded with gratitude in that moment that I have a phone. Mm-hmm. I still am so grateful for really basic, you know, for basic things that I, that I have a phone to text him. It's a new iPhone. It still blows my mind. It blows my mind that I have a car that the, it goes through the Bluetooth that I can just drive around and talk. Like it blows my mind. It's actually technically Skylar's, but like it blows <laughs> my mind that I even have access to a car that has like Bluetooth hooked up to it. And there are still some days when I get in the car and I think, man, I can't believe that I, I have a car that. I can use the phone through it like blows my mind but I was overcome with gratitude and I am anytime so every year on his birthday when I text him you know I'm flooded with gratitude and that has been key for me because the gratitude for having lost everything and now having things back is extreme Right. And if I'm really honest, prior to any of my using, because I used to always think like, man, if I could just go back to college and finish, if I could go back to high school and, you know, not fuck everything up, everything would be better. But if I'm really, really honest, if I look back to the girl that I was back then, I wasn't grateful. I had so much. I had this great life growing up. And all I could ever think about, I was kind of a jealous, envious kid. All I could do was like look at other people and think that they had more and I wasn't happy with what I had and losing everything through my addiction gave me that. And again, man, I know it sounds cliche, but I will always tell anybody that it changed my life. It, it, it was like I was living in black and white. And after I went through all of, you know, the stuff that happened with my addiction, it was like the color of the world changed. Mm -hmm. And I have the ability, like I said, in that intro episode to just marvel at the ordinary, not all the time, but like even right now with coronavirus and the studio being like half closed, half open, it's been challenging, mm-hmm. but I always have that to go back to and think, you know, look how far I've come. It always gives me that, that baseline. Also, gratitude shifted my ability to look at my addiction at all because I initially came out of it with so much shame. I, you know, I was embarrassed. I didn't want to tell anybody. And I just believed that all of those years had been so wasted and so lost. But when I started looking at the gift of gratitude that I got as a direct result of my using, Mm -hmm. it changed how I looked at my, that's why I'm doing this podcast is because I want to give back and say like, look, this doesn't have to be a terrible thing. It's the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, being a drug addict is the best thing that ever happened to me. And I know that that sounds insane, but my life is just elevated to another level because of what happened. And then the last thing that I want to share that really came out of this evidence, this incident in particular in the recovery, specifically the 12 step community, having a higher power, whatever that means to you is a huge part of the 12 steps. And when I talk about having a higher power in this podcast, I will typically just use the word God because it's easier. But if you're listening to this and you're immediately going, because uh, uh, I can like feel that happening because I know a lot of people feel that way. All you have to do is believe that there is some universal force Gabby Bernstein is a spiritual like guru and leader that I listen to a lot. She describes it perfectly. She says, you know, the universe has your back and how can you look for that in different ways, whatever that might mean to you. And so again, I'll reference that typically as God, 
But I realized when they didn't press charges and nothing ever came of it, I started to think like, I think there's a God. And I think that guy might be on my side Mm -hmm. because that was a massive pass that I didn't deserve. Mm -hmm. And starting to believe that there was some possibility, that there was a force helping me move through this world is life-changing. And it's also really instrumental in recovery and in the 12 steps of AA. And that was my first real encounter with thinking, okay, there's something going on here. It also made me believe that there's maybe a purpose. That's why I'm doing this podcast. I really believe that God brought me through all of that to share this message of hope for other addicts Mm -hmm. because I was so low and I do have the ability and a platform. I own the studio now. I was also given the grace of no longer being embarrassed about it. By the time I met you, I think I was talking about it really openly, but that's actually shocking. Like when I was at, I went to a rehab in Oceanside once like right by the water and we would go to meetings on the beach and I used to teach bar and stuff in that area and they would sing happy birthday if it was someone like a year or two years and I would literally like duck behind the other girls on the chance that there would be somebody walking by on the boardwalk that had been a former client. I was horrified that I was in rehab. Mm -hmm. So in a few short years for me to have gone from that to publicly putting it out there on a podcast, Mm -hmm. how much of a drug addict I was and you know I post every year on my sobriety date. I'm very open about it. Um, I'm only doing that because I do get a little bit fearful still. Mm -hmm. I'm doing that though, because I feel so strongly that that's my purpose. And that's why I was brought through all of that stuff Mm -hmm. with a voice still and the ability to articulate my stories. I think that's why I remember them really. Mm -hmm. I mean, now we're getting a little abstract, but I think that that was a real gift that I could give back and share with detail. Right. Oh, I think it's definitely a gift. When I first started coming to the studio, and taking your classes I don't remember you talking about it a whole lot and I remember feeling more energy in the room and that I was getting more out of the workout when you did start to share and right. being really vulnerable and talking about your struggles and your recovery and I think it changed the way you taught really right and I didn't know did. a whole lot of pre yeah. pre Janine and, and your teaching but that's I, actually I think one. that's what drew me to yeah, the class. That's actually a great point. And I've, and I haven't brought that up yet since we've been talking about this, but my using also changed my teaching. I was good before cause I, you know, I have like an ear for music and I can explain things pretty well. I was good before, but when I came back, because there were periods of time when it looked like I was probably never going to teach again. And for mm-hmm. those of you guys listening, so I'm doing this podcast, but my main job is I teach spin and bar and fitness and my husband and I own this studio where we're recording and I always love teaching it's like the most fulfilling thing in my life is teaching spin in particular. And during the months and years that I was homeless and not working, I would go on Craigslist and look at studios that were hiring. This is really sad. And like, if I got a hold of somebody else's phone, I would like jump online. I would maybe go on Facebook sometimes and see my friends that were like buying houses and getting married Mm -hmm. in Georgia. But then also I would go on Craigslist and see if people were hiring and think like, Oh my God, I, you know, that one of the saddest aspects of my using was believing that I might not ever teach again. Mm -hmm. So when I came back, I am so happy to be back on a bike teaching. That also gives me strength during times like right now, Mm -hmm. during this closure. I'm just grateful to be back in it in any capacity, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was also such a gift of using in my addiction is that it changed my career, just brought it to a new level. I'm so happy to do it. And I was a little bit jaded before, Mm -hmm. you know, right. The gratitude that you have of doing it adds to like how you teach the class, what people get out of it. Yes. All of those things. Yeah. 
So a few times you talked about taking responsibility and many of the clients I've worked with really struggle with seeing, I call it their role in their life or with their addictions. How important is it to your recovery to take accountability? It's the most important thing that someone can do because as long as you're blaming somebody else, it's you. So step one, which was the hardest step for me to do Mm -hmm. is that I have a problem. That's the initial. And if it's somebody else's fault, then I don't have a problem. Right. And I think I, I, I can't remember if I've said this yet on the podcast, but it's very easy for me to blame my ex for a long time because even though I had used and my life was actually out of control, it was easy to deny that. Mm -hmm. And it was bad, but it wasn't heroin bad. And so it was easy to say to that first sponsor, look, I don't really have a problem. I met this asshole and he got me to do this thing. Mm -hmm. But as long as you're saying that kind of stuff, that means you're open to doing it again. And then you're locked in that cycle. So, and that's why that realization when I was in holding and I realized I had become that girl was so important because that was my fault. That was me. That progression had taken me there. Mm -hmm. And so if there's any part, this is what I think, if there was any part of me left, and this was probably my hardest struggle in all of this, that blamed other people, then that leaves open the door to continue using because there's the idea that I still have control. Okay. So you have to admit that you have no control over it in order to start your step work or yeah yeah basically I mean you can do step work without having that realization I did (laughs) but it doesn't really necessarily you know work you can write out the timeline yeah so in therapy we talk about the stages of change the first being pre-contemplation where you don't even maybe identify that there's an issue or something you want to change the second being contemplation where you are thinking maybe there's something I want different in my life followed by action and then maintenance People can go in between stages, back and forth, skip stages. It sounds like your last arrest was maybe a big event that pushed you from pre-contemplation to contemplation. It did. And that's interesting to hear the therapeutic, the therapeutic terminology mm-hmm. and think that, yeah, that's exactly what the program kind of tries to do too. And you would say that I'm in maintenance now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think... I had been living in contemplation for, because like I said, I was homeless June, July, August. But prior to that, January through May, until we got kicked out of June, mm-hmm. was I had just been living fully using, which was not something I'd done before. I'd, I'd at least been trying to like teach and get back to something. Mm-hmm. But my ex and I were just committed to committing crimes and using, and, and we spent all of our money on, on dope and just lived that way. And... Mm-hmm. That was probably pre-contemplation. And then the months that I was homeless really affected me. Mm-hmm. And But yeah, I think looking back, that arrest, and like you've asked me before, what, was, what finally changed after all of these years of trying to quit, I think that that incident and specifically realizing that I had become that girl affected me more than I even realized. And like I was just telling Kim before we started recording, I've even realized that more that she and I have been talking about this. Um, that must have clicked for me somehow because after that I got actively into recovery, not straight all the way through, Mm -hmm. but that was when I really started. Like when I got back to choices that time, I was so relieved to be there. I believed that I needed to be there. And the first time I was there, I did not think any of those things. I was constantly trying to get away with stuff. I kind of had fun, but I didn't think, like I told you, I told that other sponsor I'm not really an addict. This was a mistake. Mm -hmm. 
The second time I was there after this incident, I did not think it was a mistake anymore. I believed I needed to be there and it was a while before I could pull the trigger on being abstinent completely. But I'm glad that we got into this because again, for anyone that's listening, when you get into AA or NA or you know whatever 12-step community you're a part of, which I do recommend, they talk a lot about a sobriety date or a clean date and it's very black and white. And I do believe it needs to be like I promote abstinence rather than, you know, over harm reduction or something else because that's the way I believe that your life is really going to fully progress. Mm -hmm. But what isn't black and white is, and it's good to hear you say that, that like therapeutically there's some, there's some science to this. There's some theory to this Mm -hmm. is that you can spend some time in and out. And that is what I did. I would do 90 days and fall out. But the entire time I was out, I wanted to get back. And that was new. Mm-hmm. And I was really getting glimpses of what life could look like. And this arrest did push me into that period. And I legit didn't even realize that until you and I have been talking over the past few weeks. That's so crazy to me. I've always wondered what was the difference. Mm-hmm. And it must have been that. I think it was that, that I realized that things had progressed for me. Like, you know, insanely. And so after that, I was actively trying. And then what happens is you're so locked into that, that life that it's, it was how I coped with everything and things come up when you're in rehab, you're still a person. Mm -hmm. So you get, you know, you get heartbroken or something happens to somebody in your family and your instinct is still to use. Mm -hmm. And it's a while before that goes away. And then what happens is you get so beat up by losing your clean time that it's hard to come back. And you only hear stories from people that have three years, four years, five years, six years. And it's not often spoken about this this period that I'm talking about right here, mm-hmm. where you are actively trying to get back. And I was absorbing information. I was learning stuff. And actually I was learning stuff every single time. Even the first time I was at Choices, I was learning stuff. Mm-hmm. What that girl said to me stuck. You know, I just wasn't ready to act on it yet. Exactly. And it's so important to me that anybody listening to this, especially right now, you guys with the opiate epidemic and I, you know, depending on when you're listening to this, we're all in quarantine and there aren't a lot of meetings and people are like dying. People are overdosing on this epidemic. And even though I am scared to put my stories out there and I am, I know I speak about it very brazenly, but there is, I had a mo I panicked last week, mm-hmm. last Monday night. I just like sat up in bed and looked at my husband and said, are you okay with this? What am I doing? Yeah. And he's fully supportive of everything I do. You know, mm-hmm. she knows my husband. <laughs> And he was like, I'm so proud of you. Like, he doesn't care. But I really, in fact, I even went back and I, like, pulled my last name off all the descriptions. I panicked. So, like, it is scary. As, as, as openly as I'm speaking about it, it's scary. But what's so much more important to me is that somebody else can maybe hear this and think, okay, I can try. And if you are listening to this, if you are interested in getting clean and sober you can and even if you're getting a little bit of time and falling back out if you have that desire you're in contemplation Mm -hmm. right and that is a closer stage to recovered than not you know okay janine so during this episode we've talked about how you saw yourself progressing through your addiction and how you were actively trying to get clean being so vulnerable with potentially a large audience can be scary but for what, what, from what I'm hearing you say is you view this as part of purpose. And Emily Esfahani smith says purpose is one of the four keys to happiness. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's changed my life. You know, talking about, it's just so important to me to let other people know, man, you don't have to die 
You don't have to die. You don't have to be strung out on heroin. And almost even worse than overdosing is living as a strung out person because nobody is born wanting to be a strung out heroin addict. No one. And people around you forget that when you're using. You're just a piece of shit to most people. And But on the inside, you're, you know who you are. Mm-hmm. I was still me. Right. And... It's so important to me and it supersedes my fear. Like you said, it's a little bit scary to know that this is a wider platform. The safety of our studio, which is a very safe place for me is one thing, but then to talk about it on a larger platform is a little bit scary. However, that is way surpassed by my need to tell people that, and I feel I don't do enough for recovery because I am so caught up in the studio but my strong need is to tell people that, that you know, that you, you don't have to die of this thing. You really don't. Mm-hmm. And not only do you not have to die, it can turn out to be a really good thing. There's another quote that I love. Oprah says this all the time. I think it's Gary Zukoff that said it, that when your personality meets your purpose, that's real true power. Mm-hmm. And I always felt that that was maybe true for me with teaching, but I, especially with this, you know, if I can give a voice to the recovered heroin addict, the person that you see on the street and you cross the street to avoid, mm-hmm. I guess if I could be that face, which is not something I thought, but, you know, but why not? Why not say it's a regular person? It can happen to anybody, you know, and and that you don't have to die that way. So thank you as always for, you know, being here with me and for you guys listening, any questions that y'all might have, if you want to submit anything, Chasing Heroin, and it's heroin with an E, like female hero. We should actually do an episode once about the logo and what that means. But chasingheroin.com is another website that I have. It was originally a platform. I've also got some yoga up there. I do yoga as the steps manifested in physical movement. I've got steps one through four up there. And now that my studio is reclosed, I should go ahead and probably pick that up and finish. So if you're interested in that, that's on that website. But also at chasingheroin.com, you could submit questions to us. There's, There's a form there if you guys are interested. And if you are looking for help, if you just Google Alcoholics Anonymous in your area, there will be a number for you to call for Zoom meetings. If you're in the San Diego area and you want to reach out to me, I can give you information about Heroin Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous or Zoom. And a few live meetings are starting to pop up. And if you guys want to get connected with us through social media, my Instagram is at Janine Coulter. Kim's Instagram is at KCAP. 524 KCAP 524. Hers is private given her profession. So if you want to message her, she can check that. But stay connected with us. Reach out. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll get another episode up in August. So thank you guys so much. Thank you, everybody.